Welcome, everyone. We have a lot happening tonight. It's a great night. Uh, We're going to have a time in the Word of God. Pastor Jonathan is going to be opening up and helping us to better understand a very strategic passage in the Word of God pertaining to women, uh, namely 1 Timothy chapter 2. After he has finished his teaching, we will have a time of Q&A, followed by, hopefully, a time of voting on that issue, at which time we'll uh, hand out the ballots and make sure that everyone has a copy of it, we'll talk it through, and so forth. After the second service, and by the way, in between, we're only going to sing one verse of one song, and the children will go to their program. Instead of the children meeting in the fellowship hall as usual, they'll be meeting in the Midwest Center classroom because the fellowship hall is all set up for the other exciting thing, namely an opportunity tonight to honor our graduates. We have eight of them. In fact, when uh, we're through voting, we're going to have those eight graduates come up on the platform. Probably I'll have them stand on the the risers, and I'll use a handheld mic. And I just want to tell you where they're going to college, and we have a small gift for each of them. And at that time, we're going to let them go out first, and they're actually going to serve themselves. They're going to fix their own plate and set it aside. And then they're going to get in line to where we can all walk through the line and congratulate them and encourage them. And while uh, people are going through the line, they can start eating. But the graduates will have their food. We didn't, we didn't want them to end up with nothing to eat. So that's the big plan. Let's pray for the Lord's presence to be with us tonight. And as soon as I finish praying, Pastor Jonathan will come and take us uh, one, one step further in our study. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity again tonight on this your day, to worship you and to fellowship with one another. Uh, Tonight, our main focus of worship will be humbly bowing before your word. Uh, We come like little children, and we bow down, and we ask that you will be our teacher. We thank you that you have revealed supernaturally, infallibly, authoritatively everything that we need for life and godliness, not just as individuals, but for our corporate life as a church. We're so thankful that we have the Word of God to guide us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to understand its meaning and to see its application to the life of our church. Lord, bless those who couldn't be with us tonight. So many have traveled summer vacation having begun. Bless them, encourage them, refresh them, keep them healthy. Return every single one of them to us in safety. And please bless the preaching and teaching of your word yet tonight in this hemisphere so that the kingdom of our Savior might actually be enlarged and advanced. So bless us. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.
Okay. Well, some more people are filing in here. Uh, let me uh, let me pray as well, and we'll dive in. We got a lot to do here in First Timothy two, so don't want to waste any time. Let's let's get right to work. Let me let me pray. Father, again, thank you for the opportunity to sit in front of your word, and Lord, we do pray that you'd give us insight and clarity, and that you would help us to firmly root ourselves on the truth. We want to stand on the truth. We don't want to have a misunderstanding of your truth and your word. So I pray that you would direct us and guide us into all truth and keep us from error and cause us to see only what you would have us to see from your word. We thank you for this opportunity and for this chance to examine this. Thank you for the word. It's, 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 we're grateful for it. Bless our time together, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so tonight um, we are going to finish up this two-part teaching that we have started on the uh, subject of women praying in the local church. And last week, if you remember, we, we started in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And my goal was to show you that when Paul tells the women to be silent in that text, he's referring to a situational silence. Paul does not have the subject of prayer in view, in fact, in the chapter in 1 Corinthians 14. It's all about edification, and when he does talk about silence, he talks about it situationally. In fact, he encourages women to pray and prophesy in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he encourages, encourages women to do that and even more in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And I showed you from the text that the real issue in 1 Corinthians 14 actually has very little to do with the role of women in the church. So if you, if you go at 1 Corinthians 14 with that slant in mind, you're already on the wrong track. Because you're bringing something to the text. That's not Paul's point. The major issue is the edification of the church. The worship of God was not edifying, remember, because everyone is speaking out of turn and there was no order established. And Paul, so Paul lays down some ground rules for how these gifts should be used and exercised in the church. And he says, if you're not willing to follow those rules, then you should be silent in that context. And Paul tells three different sets of people to be silent in certain situations. If the tongue speakers don't follow the rules, they should be silent. If the prophets don't follow the rules, they should be silent. And yes, even the women, if they do not follow the rules, then they should be silent. If women are contributing to the overall chaos of the meeting by asking questions in inopportune times, in inappropriate ways, then yes, they too should be silent. So Paul encourages tongues. He encourages prophecy. And yes, he encourages women to express those gifts. What they're not supposed to do is to disrupt the meeting by asking inopportune questions. In short, Paul is not concerned with women praying in the local church. He doesn't even address the subject of prayer. And to assert such a thing is insensitive to the context. Now, tonight, we want to do is look at one more text that, is wrong, that has been wrongfully used to argue that women are not permitted to pray in the local church. And that text is 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. Now, before we get into this text, um, let me just say that something by way of preface. Whenever we approach verses that concern the place of women in the church, we should be careful not to isolate these verses from Scripture's more fundamental assertion that men and women have equal value and dignity by virtue of creation and redemption. So we're all created equal in terms of the way we image God, we bear his image, and by virtue of our redemption. So 
you know, I'm not more saved than a sister in Christ is in here. Okay, so in that sense, there's no difference between the sexes, either in the way we image God and our status as God's children through faith in Christ. So any idea of gender superiority or gender inferiority is already ruled out from the very start. The New Testament makes it plain that Christian women, like men, have been given spiritual gifts. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 7 through 11. Women, like men, are to use these gifts to minister to the body of Christ. 1 Peter 4, 10. Their ministries are indispensable to the life and growth of the church. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 26. And there are many examples in the New Testament of just such ministries on the part of gifted women Uh, to be in in the New Testament. So if we're going to be true to the New Testament, then we have to honor these various ministries of our sisters and encourage them to pursue those ministries. But here's the question. Does the New Testament place any restrictions on the ministry of women? Because from the earliest days of the apostolic church, most Orthodox Christians have thought so. And one important reason is the passage before us. So let's go ahead and read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12. Paul says, Therefore, I want the men to pray in every place by lifting up holy hands without anger and arguing. Likewise, I also want the women to adorn themselves in modest dress with respect and self-control, not with elaborate hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with what is appropriate for women who are committed to godliness, namely with good deeds. A woman should learn in quietness with all submissiveness, but I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. So here's the question. Has the church been right to think that this passage imposes certain permanent restrictions on the ministry of women? Because certainly, that's what this passage seems to say. I mean, it says women are not to teach or exercise authority over men. But many in our day think that this passage actually places no restrictions whatsoever on the ministry of women. Still other people will come at it from the other side and say that it it limits only certain women from certain ministries in certain circumstances. And then other people are just say it just excludes women from everything. So people are really coming at this from all different directions and backgrounds. So how do we make sense of it all? Context and faithfulness. That's how. And I said last week that there's really kind of three approaches to take with texts like this. The first is what I call the traditional approach, which again maintains that Paul's words here are culturally transcendent and normative. The other approach is what I call the hermeneutical approach, which asserts that sort of generally accepted principles of interpretation will prove that these Pauline prohibitions are specific for Paul's culture, and thus they're not really for us today, so we don't have to worry about it. And third, the third approach is a critical approach, which assigns these texts, these difficult texts, to someone other than Paul, so as to try to save Paul from being a male chauvinist. Well, I said that we reject the hermeneutical approach and the critical approach, and we accept the traditional approach. We believe that these words came from Paul, and that they're culturally transcendent and normative for us today. So again, what does it mean when he says in verse 12, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to, listen, remain quiet. Does that have any bearing on the issue of women praying in the local church? 
Or what does Paul mean when he says in verse 8 that I want the men to pray in every place by lifting up holy hands without anger and arguing? I mean, is that not evidence that it's the adult males that were permitted to pray and not the women? Well, those are really good questions. And thankfully, this text offers some clear and definitive answers. So, my thesis for tonight is this. If I was going to boil it all down to a point, here it is. In no way does 1 Timothy 2, 8-12 through 12 prohibit women from praying in the local church. In fact, it does the, exactly the opposite. It encourages it. And I want to show you this, and by, by looking carefully with you at the structure of this text. And I want to say two things up front that this text does not mean, and then I want to close with what it does mean. Okay, now... This week, I spent one of the values of going to seminary and getting trained in, in theology, hermeneutics, exegesis, biblical languages, etc., is that you're forced to spend a lot of time in the Greek and Hebrew. And that does, that does prove to be extremely helpful at times. And so this week, I sat down and just stared at the Greek text for hours because I wanted to make sure that I'm understanding this correctly And the more I looked at it, just stared at it, the more compelling the text became. It was pretty remarkable. Ultimately, and I was forced to conclude after just just staring at it, that not only does 1 Timothy 2 not prohibit women from praying, it actually goes so far as to encourage it. And that became clear. And I told PT, just kind of joking around, that I wish this were a Greek exegesis class because this would be a lot easier to explain what's going on with the text because it's actually the English that obscures all this. The Greek is really quite clear in this text. So the structure is clear. In fact, I think it's incontrovertible. In fact, it's the English that's unclear. So like we did last week, let's talk context. Context is king, and without it, we're going to be on a fool's errand. So let me just say one more word about reading contextually. This is really important. Um, Unless we allow the context to drive us, we will be susceptible to reading into the text what we want it to say. Okay, And scholars call that eisegesis. And it happens when people start with a theological conclusion and then they go on, to, on a hunt to find where that conclusion is supported in Scripture. And that's a bad idea. Instead, what we should be doing is starting with the text itself and letting it drive us wherever it goes, even if wherever, wherever, wherever it goes makes us uncomfortable. We need to be willing to be made uncomfortable. By exegesis, faithful exegesis. So here's the question. Do we have the courage? I'm going to ask you this personal question. Do you have the courage to let the Bible be the Bible? Do we have the courage to face hard text and let those texts take us, in some cases, to uncomfortable places? Let me ask you this. What if the text you're looking at doesn't fit your preconceived theological conclusions? I mean, after a deep and protracted study and consultation with other scholars... And I say it this way, all these words are important. After a deep and protracted study and consultation with other scholars and confirmation from other wise and godly evangelical Christians, after all that, let me ask you this, are you willing to part with a previously held understanding even if it doesn't line up with Calvin, Luther, and yes, the confession of faith? I would hope so. I would hope we are all able to do that because we are we must be willing to let the text form and shape us and not merely let our theological grid that we inherited shape us that's really important so exegesis is king and context is crucial 
And that's why exegetical theology is always the foundation for systematic theology. I mean, there's no replacement for deep, protracted, painstaking exegesis. I mean, I get stuck on text sometimes to just pour over them for hours and hours because I want to know what does this text mean. I mean, I don't want to just go and grab a systematic theology off the shelf and see what some guy said about it, but wrestle with a text and be willing to spend hours trying to figure out. Now, I'm going to pull the guy down because I, I don't want to be arrogant and prideful and assume that sort of I, I can figure this out on my own. I don't need anybody else. And that, that would be an opposite mistake. So we don't want to make either of those mistakes. So enough of that preaching. Let's just get into the text itself. Chapter 2, uh, the worship of the local church is in view. Okay, That's the big idea here. And the dominant theme in this whole passage is prayer. Just scan through it. You're going to see that prayer it starts off with prayer. Parakaleo, I urge you. And it starts off with this desire to, for us to pray. Now, we can divide this text really into three sections. Okay, Here they are. I would say you can divide it into verses 1 through 7. Which would be the one through seven identifies the people that we should pray for and why. Okay, the context is the local church. Verses one through seven, the people we should pray for and why. Verses eight through ten describes the attitude and behavior we should have when we pray. And verses eleven through fifteen specify two things that women are prohibited from doing in the local church. Okay, that's the that's the. Division there. So there's my outline. There's the outline of the text. Prayer, how men and women should pray, and a prohibition placed on women teaching and exercising authority over men. All right? Now, if my thesis is that in no way does 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 12 prohibit women from praying in the local church, in fact, it encourages it, then we need to see how Paul argues that in this passage. But before we do, there's two statements here. In verses 8 and verse 12, that have caused some people to think that Paul does not approve of women praying out loud in the local church. And so what I want to do is to show you how people have used these verses, what I think as a proof text against women praying, and then show you how any exegesis that tries to support that is actually unwarranted and illegitimate. And then finally, I want to look at the grammar of the text and show you what Paul is doing Namely, encouraging our sisters to pray. So look at verse 12. And I would say that this is the least challenging argument against women praying. So if you're a supporter of women not praying, this would probably be the weakest argument in in the arsenal. Okay, Verse 12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, but rather she is to remain quiet. Now from that verse, some have come along and said, see... See, see, Paul says twice in verse 11 and 12 that the women are to learn in silence or that she is to remain quiet. See, the argument is that if a woman is to remain silent, then wouldn't she also be forbidden from praying? I mean, isn't that part of silence? Well, in order to answer that question, we, we need to understand what Paul meant when he used the word quiet or silent. I mean, that's kind of crucial. The word for silence here is asuchia, and it's used three times in the chapter. Okay, now here's just a quick lesson on how to sort of go about doing a word study carefully. You don't want to just grab a, a lexicon, look it up, and see all the words, all the way it's used. I mean, that could be helpful. A good way to do it is to look up every use of that word and do concentric circles, which means start in the smallest. If you're starting with Paul... 
and you're looking at 1 Timothy, start with how Paul uses that word in 1 Timothy in that chapter. In that pericope. Then broaden out to how Paul uses that word in all of 1 Timothy. Then try 2 Timothy. And then try Pauline epistles. And then try the New Testament in general. And then broaden out and look at how maybe the Septuagint or something uses that word in its Greek translation of the Old Testament. The point is, that's a careful way to do this. And if you look at the word, this word, esuchia, and you'll find it that it shows up in verse, three times in this chapter, and it shows up straight away in verse 2. In its adjective form, adjectival form, as esuchios. And in that verse, it refers to a quiet life which all godly people should lead. Look at verse 2. Not just women. Paul says at the end of verse 2, pray, that's, that's the verb, and then go to the end of verse 2, pray that we may lead a quiet and peaceful life, godly and respectable in every way. So right away we have some insight into the use of the word. In verse 2, it can't be referring to absolute silence since a quiet and peaceable life is not a life of total silence. I mean, nobody would argue that. Instead, it's, a, it's an untroubled life. It's a peaceful life. It's a content life. So the silence isn't total silence. silence. Quietness is the idea here. Now, this becomes clearer at the end of verse 12, where the same word is used again. But this time, you can tell what Paul has in mind by its opposite. Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over men. Over men. Instead, okay, here's the opposite. She should, here's the word, remain quiet. In other words, quietness is contrasted with exercising authority. So, this is if Paul is saying, you're to be quiet. That is, you're not to exercise authority. What I mean by quietness is, don't be... An authority, don't be exercising authority. Then the second thing that we need to look at is the, this word teaching in verse 12. I mean, how extensive is Paul's prohibition when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach? To answer this, I think one thing that we have to do is we have to look at other places in the New Testament where Paul talks about women teaching. For example, in Titus chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says that the older women are to teach the younger women. So there he automatically he specifies teaching with women. Okay, So another example is Priscilla. And, and, and it says in Acts 18.26 that when Priscilla and Aquila heard Apollos, they took him and expounded to him the way of God more accurately. So there's a situation where you have a woman teaching Apollos. Okay? So what does Paul have in mind here when he says it did not permit a woman to teach? Well, I think the safest thing to do is to let the next phrase guide us. The, the next phrase is, or exercise authority over men. In other words, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Teach and exercise authority go together. He's a reason why he's putting those two terms together. So... One general thing we can say about women teaching is that Paul forbids it when it's part of the exercise of authority over men. Teaching that exercises authority over men is certainly prohibited. Okay? I think we can say that pretty clearly. So, it seems that the kind of quietness Paul has in mind is the kind of quietness that respects and honors the male leaders that God has called to oversee the church. That's why verse 11 says that such quietness should be expressed, listen, look, in full submission. 
So he's pulling these things together. And it's why verse 12 says that such quietness is the opposite of authority over men. So the point here is not whether a woman can speak. It's certainly not whether a woman can pray, but whether she's submissive and supports the structure that God has called to oversee the church. In essence, quietness means not speaking in a way that undermines that authority. So the word quiet in verses 11 and 12 in no way prohibits a woman from praying. Now, before we get to verse 8, I just want to make one more comment about verse 12. Because according to this verse, there's two things that Paul prohibits a woman from doing. Teaching and exercising authority over a man. Those are the only two prohibitions that Paul places on women in the local church. And here's the point. Prayer is neither of those. Okay, prayer is not teaching and prayer is not exercising authority over men. So first Timothy two eleven and 12 does not teach that women are prohibited from praying out loud in the context of the local church. And to argue that is unwarranted and totally illegitimate. Okay, number two. The second way people try to argue against women praying in the local church from this text is from verse eight. Now, this would be the stronger of the two arguments. Paul says, I want the men to pray in every place by lifting up holy hands without anger and arguing. Now, from this verse, people have come along and they've said, see, this proves that Paul has in mind the adult men of the church. And therefore, by implication, the women are excluded from from praying. And so people argue that this text teaches that the adult men are to exclusively lead the church in prayer. And the reason that's given is that the word for men here is the word oner. And the word oner designates an adult male as opposed to a woman or a child. Okay, everybody tracking with that argument? The word is a, is a term for a male, an adult male. Okay, so what do we think about that argument? Well, several things need to be said about it. Number one, first, uh, nowhere in this text does Paul say that men are to exclusively lead the church in prayer. To argue that women are forbidden to pray just because men are mentioned and commanded to pray is at best an argument from silence. Just because men are commanded to pray doesn't mean women are not permitted to pray. Second, theological arguments that are built exclusively, or let me say it this way, primarily on semantics or the meaning of words are tenuous arguments. And here's what I mean by that. Because words have such a broad range of meaning, like the word cosmos, it has at least eight different meanings, world, in in the New Testament. The word world can mean at least eight different things if you nuance it. So since, since words have such a broad range of meaning, it's always dangerous to place too much weight on the meaning of a word. I mean, it's just not a strong argument when you're trying to sort of establish something exegetically. And that leads me to the third point. The word oner does not always designate an adult male as opposed to a woman or a child, as it's sometimes argued. It's just frankly not the case. Even when it does refer to an adult male, which I think it does in this text, let me be really clear, I think it refers to an adult male here. But even when it does, it's careless to assert that it only refers to an adult male in the New Testament. That's just not true. 
I mean, and to say such a thing is careless. To say that on there always refers to adult males, not true. Sometimes it's used to, to show honor and respect to a whole group of people, including women. So, for example, when somebody stands up to address a crowd, oftentimes the word on there was used. And there were plenty of women and children in that crowd. Um, George Finer, in his Greek grammar, says when the word on air is used to address a whole group, the emphasis is placed on that word to show respect. This was frequently the case in Greek oration. It means when people were giving speech speeches, they were speaking, they would use the word on air to address a group. And, and Finer is right. And it's obvious from various texts that when the word is used, more than men are in mind. For example, let me give you an example. Acts, Acts 2.22. Pastor Mark is preaching in that text this morning. Pentecost. Peter's preaching. And he, Peter stands up and he says, On air of Israel. Men of Israel. I mean, are we to conclude that just men are present at Pentecost? I mean, how about Acts, or how about Acts 17.22 when Paul says, Men of Athens. On air. In that case, we know more than just men were present in Acts 17. Why do we know that? Well, because verse 34 says so. Verse 34 says, when Paul is done preaching to the men of Athens, verse 34 reads, but some men, some on air joined him and believed among whom were a woman named Demarius. So a gune, a woman, was under the subset of on air. It's pretty clear. So the fact is, on air can be used to include persons of either sex. James 1.19 is another example. You can look that one up later. And many other texts can be shown to validate this point. But again, what's going on here is something similar to Galatians 3.36. Uh, I think Pastor Mark preached that a couple years ago. I remember that because he made this point that the daughters of God are referred to as sons of God. In other words, when, when, when you're adopted, the use of the male term was meant to communicate honor. So, so that you can say you're a son of God if you're a sister in Christ. So it's fallacious to argue that the Greek word oner only and exclusively refers to adult men and not children and women. And I, I just say that because even though I, the word oner here means an adult male, I want to say that to you because people, when they start arguing that way, you should be concerned. Because maybe they've not thought through the issue carefully. D.A. Carson calls this the unwarranted restriction of the semantic field fallacy. How about that for a mouthful? (laughs) Unwarranted restriction of the semantic field. He describes it this way. He says, there are many different ways of misunderstanding the meaning of a word in a particular context. By illegitimately, listen, listen, restricting the word semantic range. We sometimes fail to appreciate how wide the total semantic range of a word is. Therefore, when we come to perform the exegesis of a particular passage, we do not adequately consider the potential options and unwittingly exclude possibilities that might include the correct ones. And that's exactly what's happening when on air is restricted in certain situations. And I say all that, friends, because I, I just want you to be a thoughtful exegete. I want you to be careful. Before we draw large conclusions from the meaning of particular words, we need to be really careful. Now, with all that said, I told you that I believe that the word on air here does refer to adult men. So, and why do I think that? I think that because Paul speaks about the women in verse 9. And he draws a comparison between men and women. So if he's going to say on there in verse 8. And then he's going to say gune in verse 9 refer to women. Clearly he's showing a distinction between male and female. Now if that's the case. Then what, what does this mean for, the, for our purposes this evening? I mean if verse 8 says I want the men, the males to pray. Does that not mean again Pastor Jonathan that women are excluded from praying in the church? Well the answer is no. I mean... 
And again, the context and the grammar help us tremendously on this point. And this leads me to my second and most serious response to those who would say this text prohibits women from praying in the local church. Okay, now here's my response. Listen, listen carefully. To read this text and to argue that prayer in the local church is to be led exclusively by men and that women are are not permitted to pray is a gross misreading of the grammar and syntax of the Greek. This week, in order to understand this text, what I did was I diagrammed the text, this passage, to see how every word was functioning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put up the English diagram on the screen because we're English speakers. This way you can look at it and see what's going on here. Okay, now I diagrammed this text. And to show how this is used. And a surface level reading of the Greek text reveals that verses 8 and 9 are linked by the word likewise. So 1 Timothy 9 starts with likewise. That's just a comparative adverb and it's connecting two thoughts. So it's clear that he's linking verses 8 and 9. So let me just say this up front. If you're looking at your Bible right now and you have a division between 8 and 9. So 9 starts a new section. I'm sorry. But that's a really bad, poor choice by the translators. Because these verses are inextricably linked. They have to be, grammatically. They're tied to one another. So I, I hope your Bible doesn't break that up, but it does in some cases. I've seen them. Okay, so there's a formal grammatical link between these verses, and they're linked by this comparative adverb, which is hos autos, or likewise in English. Okay? Now, before I'll break that down a little bit more in a second, but just listen to me for a second. Walter Bauer in his Greek lexicon says that this word likewise, or hosaltos, listen, is a marker of similarity that approximates identity. Okay? That's why it's translated in the same way, similarly, or likewise. The point is, the point is that a comparison is being drawn between verse 8 and verse 9, and to this point, John Stott says... The Greek sentence begins with the word likewise so that commentators will naturally ask, what similarity does Paul have in mind? He's got something in mind. Stephen Levinson, who's a scholar in the realm of discourse analysis and cognitive linguistics, he had this to say about 1 Timothy 2.9. He said the word likewise constrains the reader to draw a parallel between how men and how women should behave in public worship. And then Thomas Barker, in his dissertation on 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 and 12, says this. He says, there are numerous formal links using conjunctions and adverbs within this unit of 1 Timothy. And host altos, or likewise, in verse 9, provides cohesion with the previous statement in verse 8. As there are requirements for husbands in the public assembly, so are there requirements for wives in the public assembly. So a comparison is being drawn. Now the question is this, what is the parallel between verses 8 and 9? And I would argue, and this is the real insight into the text, that the parallel between 8 and 9 is the issue of prayer. The strongest parallel between verses 8 and 9 is the subject of prayer, and here's why. I want you to just look at the structure of the text. Mackenzie, put up the structure uh, of the text here. What it did was, took this and moved this into a different diagram, okay? Now, this is the clear sort of structure of the text. What... What Paul does here is he starts off with an action for the men. 
He says, therefore, I want the men in every place, which would be the church, to pray. In every church, okay? I want the men in every place to pray. Then he gives a positive manner, how they should do it, and a negative way, how they should not do it. The positive way is by lifting holy hands. The negative thing is without anger and arguing. So I want the men to pray, and I want them to do that by lifting their hands and by not arguing and without anger. Likewise, what's the point? Likewise, I want the women to what? I want the women to pray in a certain manner. So he says, I want the women to adorn themselves in modest dress with respect and self-control, not with elaborate hair and gold or pearls or costly clothing, but with what is appropriate for women who are committed to godliness, namely good deeds. So the same structure is there. It's a chiastic structure. He says there's an action, there's a positive manner and a negative manner. There's an action, there's a positive manner and a negative manner. He's drawing them to the word likewise is formally linking the two words together. Now go back to the English diagram. Just trying to be thorough. So when you look at this, What's clear here is that Paul is saying, therefore, I want the men to pray in every place, lifting up holy hands without anger and arguing. And likewise, I want the women. Now, the word, the infinitive that's used there is I want the women to adorn themselves. Okay. And I think what Paul has in mind here is I want the women to adorn themselves in this attire when they are praying. I think that is assumed. Here's why. When you read verse 9, there's no verb up front. Okay, verse 8 starts with a verb. The verb in verse 8 is I want. Okay, when you go to verse 9, there is no verb. I mean, it's kind of weird. You read it and you're looking at the text and I'm staring at it this week and I'm thinking, well, that's odd. Okay, so well, it's not really odd because it happens a lot in Greek. It's called an ellipsis and a word is left out because it's so obvious that it's just assumed. And so Paul says in verse 8, I want the men to pray. And in verse 8, it just starts with this. Women also to adorn themselves. Well, okay. So what happened? So Paul's wanting us to assume the word I want. Again, I want the men to do this and I want the women to adorn themselves. Okay. So what's the parallel here between 8 and 9? I think the parallel is is prayer. The point of verse 8 is that the men are to pray in a certain manner, and the point of verse 9 is that the women are to pray in a certain manner. Manner. Now, someone might say this. Someone might say, well, isn't it strange for Paul to be concerned about a woman's hair and dress when she leads in prayer? I mean, it's kind of weird. And I would say to that, why is that weird? That's exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians 11. I mean... When in 1 Corinthians 11, he's talking about the woman's hair and how, how it should cover her head. And that when she prays or prophesies, she should cover her head. And her hair is the issue. And many people think, and I think rightly so, that a woman's head covering was probably her hair. So the point is, is that, the, the point here is that if he talks about it in 1 Corinthians 11, when she prays and prophesies, she's covering her head as a respect for authority. So if anything, that just confirms what Paul's saying here in 1 Timothy, that Paul's talking about prayer when he's addressing the woman's hair, and he's addressing her dress. Second, it's likely that Paul is concerned about the way women are dressing because he doesn't want them to be a hindrance to prayer. I mean, either by ostentatious dress, he's talking about having ostentatious hair, 
and he's talking about gold and jewelry and all this stuff, that's a hindrance to prayer. Or by coming in with a seductive dress. That's a major hindrance to prayer. For her and for the, for the men. For her because that's what she's all about. She's clearly not about God. She's all about herself. So it's a hindrance to her and it's a hindrance to the men because the, the men are distracted by that. Okay? So here's what I would say. I think verse 9 is what verse 9 is saying is this. I mean, it, it translate it this way. And Mackenzie, go to the uh, English diagram again. What I would say is, it just translated this way. I think this is the would be a, a good, clear translation. Therefore, I want the men to pray in every place by lifting up holy hands without anger and arguing. Likewise, I also want, okay, the women to adorn themselves. When praying, or I also want the women, when praying, to adorn themselves in modest dress with respect and self-control, not with elaborate hair or gold pearls or costly clothing, but what is appropriate for women who are committed to godliness. Okay? Now, let me, let me close this way. Let's say that you come along and you say, okay, I can, even if a person came along and said, I can prove that Paul was not intending to speak about prayer with regard to women in verse 9. I mean, I'm not sure how you would prove that, but I mean, you'd have to, you'd have to, it'd be hard because Hos Altos is drawing a comparison. So what's the point of comparison if it's not prayer, unless it's some general vague comparison? Okay, so it'd be hard to do that. But even if you were able to do that, that would still not imply that women are not permitted to pray. I mean, the truth is, in no way does this text prohibit women from praying in the local church. In fact, I think it encourages it. The evidence, I would summarize, is this way. Paul uses the same language about a woman's attire in 1 Timothy 2 that he uses in 1 Corinthians 11. And we know he's talking about prayer in 1 Corinthians 11. Second, the whole preceding context of 1 Timothy 2 is about prayer. That's what this whole text is about. So it'd be odd if all of a sudden he just switches into just talking about just a woman's behavior in general. Totally disconnected from prayer. Third, the structure shows that the reference to women dressing appropriately, it would be without motivation if prayer is no longer in mind. And what I mean by that is when Paul addresses prayer with the men, he tells them, look, when you dudes pray, you need to pray in a certain way. So it only makes sense that he's saying to the women the exact same thing. When you pray, you need to pray in a certain way. And fourth, the word hos altos, or likewise, is a formal grammatical link between verses 8 and 9. And Paul is comparing something by, the use, by using the word hos altos. And I would argue it's the manner in which both men and women are to pray. That's the point of comparison. Men, you're to pray with holiness. And women, you're to pray with godliness when you're leading out in prayer. That's why I say, I don't think Paul just permits women to pray. I think he actually encourages it. I think he just flips the text totally upside down. And Paul's actually encouraging prayer. And finally, I would say this, nowhere in this text does Paul prohibit women from praying. He does prohibit them from teaching or exercising authority over men, but prayer is not teaching and prayer is not exercising authority. And if he wanted to prohibit women from praying, he could have simply said, I also prohibit them from praying. But he did not. So I think this text is clear. If you have more questions about that, we can talk about it. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Help us, Lord, I pray that as we 
dive into your word and the richness of it, that we would find ourselves just moved to obedience and faithfulness. We want to be faithful to your word. And I thank you for the privilege to study it. People died for it, for us to have this in our lap. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's let the children go, and then we will have a question and answer time. dismiss the children but they're dismissing themselves all right let's stand please i don't think this is on let's stand please can you hear me let's stand please to sing song.